So it kind of made easy, kind of three points for a sermon. Uh, and then I started thinking about the topics. And, Man, this is pretty heavy stuff in here. Um, I really, really, really want you to apply this sermon to your life. I think all three of the points will apply to everyone in this room. The big question today is where do you run? Where do you run for help? Where do you run for power? When we look at it, the first, uh, the first little story, we're not going to read all the verses, but we're going to read the first 13 verses. If you'll open your Bibles to Mark 5, and I think we'll have the references on the screen for you, uh, or just listen. Mark 5, 1 through 13, we're going to learn that Jesus has the power over demons. We're talking about demons. We don't really have a lot of sermons on demons sometimes. Verse 1 says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he he tore the chains apart, and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and he would cut himself with stones. When Jesus... When he, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And by the way, I believe this is the voice of the demon speaking through him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged again, Jesus, again and again, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs were feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out, went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, pretty good-sized herd of pigs, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. Now, I'm thinking about this verse and this passage. I'm thinking a lot of you have already checked out on me. Mike, I've never had this happen to me. I've never been around a person where, who was demon-possessed. I've never seen demons go into pigs and drown in a lake. And, and, and the thing I want to say to my sermon, though, is you and I are harassed by demons constantly. And we don't even know it. And I'm talking biblically here. And I really want you to, this is going to stretch a little bit out of your comfort zone to talk about demons. I want to take you a time back in my life, back in 1983, when Julie and I first went to the Congo in Central Africa. And I, we learned the language, and I was helping a young pastor named Loiso. He's kind of a short guy. And he came up to me one day and called me Buona Mike. He said, Buona Mike, would you help me start a new church in one section of our city that was called Chai? And we don't have a church there, and I want to start a new church. And I said, sure, so let's go. And so we would walk through the village, and, or not the village, but that area of the city, and go from door to door to door to door and just talk to people and kind of pray for them and ask them if they would be interested in coming to our new church. And one thing happened, one time I was with Wayso, and it's kind of shocked me because it's now the only, only time it ever happened to me. And uh, we got to this family, and the parents were really concerned about their 10-year-old boy. And they started describing to us, uh, things that were happening to him, and they were, they were totally convinced that he was demon-possessed. And those were the words they used, and they would describe all the things that this boy would do 
uh, he, would, he would always want to tear his clothes off and just r- take off running away from whoever was with him. Sometimes he would actually try to throw himself in the fire and burn himself and harm himself. I mean, what they described to us just sounded like Mark 5 almost. It's like, wow. And, and they were convinced it was a demon. And I remember Loiso saying, well, let's, let's pray for him. Let's, let's put our hands on him and let's pray that this demon will be cast out of his life. And then he looked at me and said, Juan Mike, you pray. I thought, never done this before. I was trying to think, now, when in Lincoln Christian College at the time did we have a class on this? And I couldn't think of anything. And I, was, I didn't know what to do. And I had never been asked to pray for a boy who's demon-possessed. And the demon was not manifesting at that time. And I just didn't know what to do. And I, I said, okay. <laughs> so we laid our hands on this boy. And, and I prayed. And prayed kind of a wimpy prayer, probably. I, I think it was probably something like, Lord, I know this boy's having trouble. And if it happens to be a demon, Lord, I just pray that maybe you would help that go away. And I was just kind of a wimpy prayer. It wasn't, I command you in the name of Jesus. It wasn't anything like that at all. But it's the first time I've ever been asked to pray for a boy who they say was demon-possessed. And what was interesting was several months later, uh, I don't know why I just kind of let that go out of my mind. And I was with Loiso one day. I said, Loiso, I forgot to ask you, do you have any follow-up on that family? You know, with that little boy that we prayed for? And he goes, yeah, Mike. He said, I, I, thought, I thought I told you. Uh, ever since that day we prayed, they've never had one more problem with that little boy. And I'm going, wow. God, you have power over demons. And I'd never even really thought that much about it. I still, I'm going to be very honest with you, I still have never been in the presence of a person who is demon-possessed when the demon was manifesting itself in the way that this story talks about. But I have very good friends who are. And by the way, I do believe demons are real. I believe biblically they are fallen angels. I believe Satan is a fallen archangel. Uh, I believe they're co-workers of Satan. We can call them evil spirits. We can call them demons. Uh, this, this is real stuff, guys. This is the Bible. Stuff we don't read a lot. Uh, this part of it. But uh, I have a colleague at Lincoln Christian University uh, who has been a missionary in Mexico has dealt directly with people who were demon-possessed on multiple occasions, uh, has ter- shared with me very real stories about this. And one of my own students just last semester who was on an internship in Zimbabwe, uh, she dealt with multiple teenage girls who had tons of just experiences of being manifested, this demonic activity in their lives and being possessed by demons. And Christians in Zimbabwe uh, and her name's Katie, was trying to, to learn about this. She'd never experienced anything like this before. And we prayed for Katie, and we prayed, and Katie prayed, and it, it was very, very real. And um, I'm afraid, though, when I say Mexico and Zimbabwe, that most of you are still checking out on me and think that's a, that's a long way away from, from Mount Pulaski, Illinois. And it is. But let me just tell you, I have another uh, um, colleague at LCU. Uh, who just a few years ago spent a part of a whole day down near Decatur, Illinois, uh, with a couple who had tremendous oppression of demons in their life, praying and praying and praying and doing this, some people call spiritual warfare, on behalf of this couple. And you need to know that your elders of this church, the Mount Pulaski Christian Church, we've actually been asked on one occasion a few years ago to go to a family in this town and pray through every single room of their house because they've been having so much problem 
with this mysterious phenomenon in their house over and over and over again. And they asked our elders to come and pray for them, and we did. Guys, this isn't just Africa. It's, it's everywhere. And I think part of our problem is that maybe we're thinking about them only the way Hollywood talks about demons. Demons are real, and my purpose this morning is not to scare you about them. My purpose this morning is actually to wake you up and realize that you are in spiritual warfare. You have a real enemy, whether you know it or not. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter said, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, did you hear those two words? Your enemy, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You have a real enemy, and that enemy only has one agenda item, to destroy you. And Satan and his co-workers, his demons, will try everything they can to destroy you. The problem I think we have is we're not aware of his schemes. We, we have an enemy that doesn't fight fair. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't wait until you're spiritually strong and then fight you. I tell my students at Lincoln, I, I've heard that acronym HALTS, H-A-L-T-S, which stands for hungry, when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, when you're tired, or when you're stressed or sick. Anybody ever felt those before? That's when Satan attacks you. He's like a lion who's just ready to pounce on you. And Satan knows it only takes one unguarded Saturday night to ruin your life. And he's looking for that. He's looking for your Achilles heel. He's looking for your weak areas. Guys, we have a real enemy. And he's trying to take all of us down. In Ephesians chapter 6, I wish you could read the whole chapter, but we'll just read three or four verses at the verse 10 to 13. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He has lots of schemes against all of us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What is he saying? Our struggle is not against people. Sometimes we fight with people all the time. That's not our struggle. Our real struggle is an unseen realm, and Paul calls them rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Guys, something's going on in the invisible realm that you and I can't see with our natural eyes. It's real. It's maybe more real than my knuckles hitting this piece of iron. It's real. There's so many things that are real. You talk to people about just chewing on a pencil, put that pencil under a microscope, and look and see what's on that. You may not chew on that pencil again, because there's all kinds of real things that you cannot see with your physical eyes. And Paul says, therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes in your life, you can stand. You may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, you can stand. And I think part of our problem is we just watched Hollywood movies too much, like The Exorcist or something. And we have this vision in our mind of these horrible, grotesque, demonic faces and beings. Can Satan make himself look like that? Sure. He can do it better than the Hollywood producers can. But guess what? The Bible teaches us other things about Satan. Jesus calls him the father of what? Lies. 
He's big into deception. He is, you guys know a good liar? He is the best liar that's ever been. And he is so good at deceiving. And the Apostle Paul said he masquerades as an angel of light. Satan makes himself look good. So he doesn't just come out with the demonic, grotesque stuff. He does stuff that looks really sweet and really good. He even makes himself look like a messenger of God. That's what an angel is. He's very subtle. He's very clever, very deceptive. I think in our culture, some of Satan's most successful schemes has been in the area of materialism and greed. Sometimes it's been in the area of selfishness and extreme individualism. Sometimes it's been in the area of sexual temptation. There's so many things in our culture where Satan is alive and well, and he's trying to destroy lives. He's a roaring lion, seeking who he can destroy. By the way, did anybody see the United States in this story? I did. And I didn't read it, because I stopped there in verse 13. But if you keep reading in the story, in that region, when Jesus completely heals the man of all the demons, and he's sitting there in his right mind and dressed... What was the reaction of the town? They were afraid and they told Jesus to get out of there. The, the son of, look at the irony of this. The son of God comes and drives out Satan and his demons. And what were they worried about? The economy. I know, that's a lot of pigs. That's a lot of money. These were Gentiles and, and they could have sold the pork for a lot of money. You know what I'm convinced? I believe if Jesus Christ was here today in the same kind of scenario, we would tell him to leave our country too because it's bad for our economy. Are you following what I'm saying? Satan has so many levels of seduction going on. James 4, 6 and 7 tells us, I don't have the reference, but just listen to what this says. He tells us what to do. By the way, the devil and his demons, I believe, are powerful. But please don't get, have bad theology. He is not more powerful than God. Satan is a created being. God is a creator. He is a fallen created being as an angel. And demons are fallen angels. They are created beings. And they are powerful. And I think they're probably more powerful than you and me. But they're not even close to being powerful and more powerful than God. And James says in James 4, 6 through 7... He says, humble yourselves, and then he says, submit yourselves to God, and then resist the devil, and then what will the devil do? He will flee from you. So we don't fight the devil in our own power and strength. What's the point of Mark 5? Jesus has the power. And if you are submitted to Christ, and submitted to God, and, and your greatest weapon is humility here, guys, and if you humble yourself and submit to God... Satan will flee. Where do you go when you're under de demonic attack? Go to Jesus. Point number two. Jesus has power over disease. Not just demons, but disease. Look at verses 24 to 34. And this is kind of a weird way that Mark wrote this because he has a little story of Jesus healing a woman of disease right in the middle of a bigger story of a little girl who is dying. So we'll get to the little girl who's dying in a minute. But it says, Jesus went with him, and this was the dad of the little girl, Jairus. And it says, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. I'm reading in verse 25 of Mark 5. And there was a woman there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Does that sound like health care? 
Wow. Many doctors, and she spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she was getting worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt it. She felt it in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Twelve years of, years of suffering, it was gone. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answers, and you ask, Who touched me? Jesus, everybody's touching you. What kind of a question is that? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it, and then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Imagine this woman suffering from a disease for 12 years. I was talking to Wally Couts this morning, first service. I said, Wally, how long have you suffered with the cancer that you've struggled with? He said, 13 years, Mike. Man, my heart just goes out for people that have chronic illnesses. And sometimes illnesses that are not able to be cured in this life. And they struggle and struggle and struggle year after year after year. That was this woman. It was probably menstrual hemorrhaging was probably what it was. She was called unclean. She couldn't be around people. People couldn't touch her. So she was risking herself publicly to go up and touch Jesus. She'd gone to lots and lots of doctors, spent all of her money. Jesus cared about this woman. And I want you to see this morning that he had power over disease. And this is not uncommon for Jesus. If you were to read in Matthew 9, 35, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Jesus was very holistic in his ministry, and he cared about people that were sick and had diseases. But when we talk about diseases and the enemy of diseases, we can come up with a pretty long list this morning, couldn't we? All you got to do is just look at the prayer part of your bulletin. A lot of them are listed right there. But the question is, I think, what do we do when we get sick? Isn't that a good question? What's the first thing you do when you get sick? Now, now, now think about that honestly. Sometimes the first thing we do is we rush right to the medicine cabinet, right? Sometimes if, if it's a little bit worse, we, we call up the doctor and we go to the doctor's office. And if it's even worse than that, what do we do first? We call 911. What does the Bible say that we Christians should do first when we're sick? Let me read it to you. It's in James chapter 5. Starting in verse 13, it says, is any of you guys, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Verse 14, is any of you sick? Is any of you sick? Then he should go see the doctor. Is that what James said? That's not what it said. He said he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, some of you know that the elders of this church believe in praying for the sick and for people in trouble of any kind. And uh, we have a service that we offer about three or four times a year called the 513 service. 
where we just literally lay our hands on people and we pray over them in the name of Jesus and we anoint them with oil if they want to be anointed with oil, which is not magical. It's just a sign of the power of the cross and Jesus Christ. And we do that for people in this church. And we, I think, have a balanced view of theology about healing because God doesn't always heal miraculously and in that moment. But sometimes he does. But I want to tell you that all the elders of this church and Mark Weber believe that God is able to heal disease. We, we believe it with no doubt. And sometimes he does in this life and sometimes he does not. But we all know that he will ultimately heal every person because we believe in heaven. And we'll get to heaven in a minute. But we pray humbly asking. We don't demand that God heal. We just ask God to heal because we believe he can. And I think, why is this story in the Mark 5? Because I think Mark wants us to know that Jesus has the power over disease and over sickness. When I think of my friends and my family who have suffered much, I have a long list too. My brother Steve, called him Stevie most of his life, he's only a couple years younger than me, has suffered from epileptic seizures for years. And it's sad, it's hard. One of the biggest things I ask Steve if he's had a seizure recently when I get together with him. I have a friend at Lincoln right now. I've been praying with her, and her dad has a brain tumor and has been suffering from the effects of the brain tumor for a long time. My dear friend Marvin Flowers, which a lot of you will remember Marvin, was a pastor here in this church. And just last year, he died at 61 years of age from a very aggressive form of cancer. It just seems too young to die at 61. I have a friend named Ed Buell who died last year who was a missionary colleague. He died at 62, with liver complications. I have a former missionary colleague named Phil Rogers. Some of you might know Phil, who lives in Lincoln, who was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. And all he wanted to do was be a missionary, and, and he had Huntington's disease, and he had to come home off the field. And part of the time he was in the Congo, part of the time he was in Mali, West Africa, in a, in a Muslim nation. And, I'm, and I, it's one of those things I just want to ask God about later. God, there aren't a lot of guys just lined up that want to go be missionaries in the Muslim world except for somebody like Phil Rogers. Why did, why did he have to come home because of Huntington's disease? And I have another friend who was a former student of mine. Her dad has Huntington's disease. And it's a horrible, debilitating disease. And I wonder why. It's hard when people suffer like that. And I, I know others in this church have suffered. I, I know... I know a lady who came to the first service, and I, I remember praying, actually Marvin and I praying with her husband died of Lou's Gehrig's disease, and that's horrible disease. I know some people struggle with heart disease, and others struggle with rheumatoid arthritis, and I was just talking to Chris Cowan about he had a case of shingles the other day. I mean, it's just, we could go on and on and on about all the, the suffering from disease. And I, I think it's a testimony of how fallen our world is. Guys, we are fallen at the molecular level, we are falling at the body cell level, at the genetic level, we are fallen people. I can't wait till God makes it all new again. Probably one of the roughest happened about six years ago for me. One of my favorite students, Steve Zoak, who had an evangelistic heart and just wanted to plant a church among the unreached in Chicagoland. He died of cancer at 30 he had colon cancer, and he, he fought it really hard, and he died, and he left a sweet wife, Candy, and a little girl named Jada, who was only seven at the time. 
it broke my heart. And I remember going up to the funeral visitation, and I, it was so hard. It was just so hard to be there. And I was thinking a lot about cancer and, and how diabolical cancer is. I hate the C word. And I was handed something that gave me a little bit of hope. Maybe you've seen this before. It was a little poem. They had a picture of Steve. and He was, he was fighting in a hospital gown, hooked up to tubes, and he was fighting. And, and he had this little poem that uh, you may have seen it on the internet. It's, it was called, Cancer is So Limited. Let me read it to you. Part of this poem goes, Cancer is so limited, it cannot cripple love. And it cannot shatter hope. And it cannot corrode faith. And it cannot destroy confidence. And it cannot kill friendship. Cancer is so limited. It cannot shut out memories. And it cannot silence courage. And it cannot invade the soul. Oh, maybe it can get into your bone marrow, but it can't get into your soul. And it cannot destroy peace. And it cannot quench the spirit. And it cannot lessen the power of the resurrection. And it cannot steal eternal life. Could I get an amen for that? Amen. Amen. Cancer is so limited. It seems so powerful in our lives. But Jesus made it very clear when he healed this woman that he has the power over disease. Now let's go to number three. The third story shows us that Jesus has the power over death. Death. Demons, disease, and death. What a happy sermon. You know, wow. Mark 5, 21 through 23. When Jesus had crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing, or Jairus came there, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Can't you hear this daddy pleading for the life of his little girl? And then there's the interlude of the story of the woman Jesus heals from the, from the bleeding problem. And then let's jump down to verse 35 and the story picks up again. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of of, of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child's not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was and he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished and he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, When I first read this story, my mind went back about 28 years to, and I told Sarah I was going to say this today, to when Sarah, my my firstborn child, our firstborn child, was two years old. And we're in the Congo, and Sarah got malaria at two. 
Now, malaria is pretty common in the Congo, and actually most of the members of our family got it, and we take medicine for it. So it's not as scary as most Americans think malaria sounds, although malaria kills lots of people. And so she got malaria, and we gave her doses of quinine and various medicines that the doctors, we took, we went to many doctors, and, and her fever would go down, but then after a few days, it would come back with a vengeance. And Julie and I didn't know, we thought, is she getting reinfected with malaria? What is going on? And we finally, we finally deduced it. She, she's got malaria in her system, and we can't stop it. We can't get it out of her system, and it keeps flaring up. You talk about a scared mom and dad. It's hard for me to even talk about without crying. I was crying out to God for my daughter's life. Just like Jairus was. Just like the guy in the story. Jairus was saying, it's my little daughter. Can't you just see him going, this is not just any kid, this is my little daughter. That's what I was crying out for Sarah. And it was hard. Because we didn't want to give her an overdose and, and, and we went to specialists, and we finally took her to specialists in, in, in uh, Toronto, Canada, and we were finally able to get, get it out of her system. It was scary. Now, I do want to say something about death. I, I think we in the church have some poor theology about death. And I want to say this, death is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. Do you understand that? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. But it's not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, Paul says, as an old man, he's speaking, he said, I, I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my physical body, in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he said that phrase, a lot of you remember, he said, for me to live is Christ, and to die is the worst thing that could happen to me. That's not what he, not what he said. What did he say? To die is gain. It would even be better for me to die. Do you guys realize that's good theology? It's good theology for Christians. This morning, I would like to share with you my favorite description of heaven. And by the way, that comment that Paul made, I've heard Wally Couts make that comment to me. I'll talk to Wally about one of his battles with cancer, and he says, well, Mike, especially from those times when he was really low, and he would say, well, Mike, the way I look at it, I win either way. It's true. That's not wishful thinking, guys. That's true for the Christian. You win either way. Revelation 21 gives this picture of heaven. First five verses says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And I love verse 4 and 5. And then it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Guys, those are tears from battling with disease and losing people to cancer and, and attacking, having demon, demonic attacks in your life. He says, I'm going to wipe all those tears away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I love what's not going to be in heaven. No more cancer wards. <laughs> 
No more cemeteries. No more morgues. None of that stuff. No more, no more ambulances. No more EMTs. No more disease. It's going to be a pretty cool place, isn't it? Just by what's not going to be there. He said, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Down to the, the cells in your body. I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Don't you love the end of Revelation? Don't you love to read the end of the book? In chapter 21, it's so clear that disease and death will be no more. And if you read chapter 20, you'll find that the devil and his demons will be no more. Amen. Satan's doom will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Now, I want to say something about death before we close the sermon. I know we think of death as an enemy, and I get that. It's hard. But I think death can be your greatest teacher. I really do. I'm trying to write a book. I've been writing on it for six years, and I want to get it done. I'm trying to get it done this year. My working title is two words called The Dash. It's not a book about running fast. It's, it's actually a book about um, what you see on a tombstone. And when you look at a tombstone, you see a birth date and a death date, and then you see a little hyphen mark. They're called a dash. And I know Sammy was telling me, Dad, you need to put pictures of tombstones on your book. I probably will. My subtitle for the book is, how, is, is Living Life Fully Between That Short Time of Birth and Death. How do you live life fully? Because none of us knows how long we're, we're going to live. I carry a picture of Marvin Flowers in my agenda that I look at every single day. And it reminds me, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I had a, a strange habit that when Julie and I used to get the State Journal Register for a while, when they kind of had a free trial or something, we'd get it. And I, I loved uh, turning to the obituary page. And I know, just me, but I loved looking at the obituary page. And I, I kind of made a game of it, and I would try to find anybody that died who was my age or younger. And as soon as I found somebody, by the way, I, see, I find more of those these days. I didn't used to find as many, but now I find a lot more. And I use them all as wake-up calls to say, Mike, you don't know when you're going to die. You don't have a clue when you're going to die. And how are you living for Jesus? And death can truly teach us how to live. And guys, it happened again this week just on the news. I don't know if you heard about it, but we had a U.S. congressman who died from Mississippi. And I wrote it. His name is Alan Nunnally. I don't know if you know him or heard about him. He died at 56. Anybody want to guess how old I am? 56. It was like God was saying, Mike, you don't know how long you're going to live. Doesn't matter who you are. Jesus Christ, I believe with all my heart, has the power over demons and disease and death. And you need to remember that that little 12-year-old girl grew up and died. And Lazarus was resurrected from, and he died again. So what was the death thing here? Jesus was trying to show you that he is, he is ultimate victor in his resurrection over death completely, forever. That's what the lesson's about. And I was Skyping Les Evans this morning, and he prayed for me before he knew I was going to be preaching. And I told him what the sermon was about. He said, Mike, you know, the thing that 
I want to pray about is that people at Mount Pulaski would not do what a lot of people do with disease and death and demons, and they blame God. A lot of people. They just get mad at God. I'm praying that that will not be your experience. When you deal with demonic activity in your life and all, all these spiritual attacks, and when you have to deal with disease in your own life and those of your loved ones, and I know a lot of you are hurting in that area today, and you have to deal with someone's death and having to say goodbye to someone, which is so hard for us. But I know there's a big difference between going to a Christian's funeral and a non-Christian's funeral. I've been to both of them last year. One has no hope. The other has all the hope in the world. But I just want you to pray, don't blame God. And here's why. There is nowhere else to run. I don't know of anywhere else to run except into the arms of Jesus. Because He's the one with the power. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for letting us have these three stories in Mark chapter 5 that remind us how big Jesus is and how powerful he is. And Father, I pray over this church family today that whatever enemies we're battling, that we'll just pause for a moment and remember that you are bigger than them. And you're even bigger than our sin. And you have come to save us and sustain us in this life, and to give us eternal life. We praise you in Jesus' name.